Hello, people of podcast land. Welcome back to Modern Wisdom. My guest today is Richard Shotton. He's a behavioral science expert and the founder of Astro 10. Behavioral science is one of those really interesting... That's the end of my Pomodoro. I'm going to keep going. Thank you. Be focused, pro. Behavioral science is one of those fascinating areas that I absolutely love to talk about. All of us are completely at the mercy of our own biases on a daily basis, so learning about them, even if you can't stop them from happening, is just a hilarious insight into the way that our minds work. So, today, expect to learn. What is the reason that restaurants don't put pound signs in front of their prices? Why do marketing campaigns with huge flaws end up winning the market over? How does increasing wait times on comparison sites actually improve customer buy-in? And why do budget airlines reduce quality of experience to improve trust? Also, you're going to get to find out what the word nine-enders means in a marketing sense. That's a real a real term, nine-enders. This episode is fantastic. I absolutely loved it. Richard, you're a legend and a gentleman. Thank you so much for coming on. Rory Sutherland's uh, Psychology in the World of Advertising, episode 49, is a perfect complement to this if you enjoy it. But for now, please welcome the wise and wonderful Mr. Richard Shotton. I am joined by Richard Shotton, founder of Astro 10 and author of The Choice Factory. Richard, welcome to the show. Hi, good to meet you, Chris. Fantastic to have you on. Um, just before we started, you told me that Astro 10, your company, is actually the wrong name for itself. Can you can you explain what's happened there? It, it, is, it is the wrong name. Uh, so lo- I set it up last August. And I was on a holiday and it was getting to the stage where I just needed a name. And I thought, you know, Richard Shotton Consulting would just be a bit naff. So I was uh, flicking through a pretty much a textbook on psychology experiments. And I came across this experiment uh, back in the 60s, which was all about um, the, the pernicious effects of authority. And in the, in the experiment, what the, the psychologist did was ring up hospitals, uh, said to nurses, quick, quick, you've got to go and find patient Jones and give them 100 milligrams of Astro 10. And they shouldn't have accepted the order over the phone. And when they got to the medicine cupboard, there was the fake medicine, Astro 10. And it said in big letters, don't give anyone more than 10 milligrams. Mm -hmm. Yet despite these two facts, 95% of the nurses tried to administer the fake drug. Did someone step in and go, what are you doing? No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm guessing there was was someone, you know, uh, hiding in a cupboard or something. I don't don't know. Yeah, that that part. Uh, But the... So I thought, yeah, this is brilliant. Um, relevant name for the company. It's part of a psychology experiment. And I also kind of liked the anti-authoritarian vibe that, you know, it was one of the reasons for setting them up on my own. So I registered the name, got the website, uh, registered at company's house, did all that stuff. And then about a month or two later, I thought, well, if I'm going to call myself Astro 10, I should probably read the original paper. Uh, and I went and found this paper. And as I was halfway through, I suddenly realized to my horror that, the textbook had had a typo. So the, the the drug in the real experiment back in the 60s was not Astro 10, it was Astro Gen. So 
my company's is, <laughs> it is a mistake. I mean, your company's a typo. <laughs> yeah, my company's a typo. But I thought after that time, one, I couldn't be bothered to re- uh, get another website, and yeah. I kind of I kind of like the fact that you've a, got a typo behind it, yeah, yeah. Which yeah. is like again, it's human behaviour, right? <laughs> well, the, the, yes. One of the, I mean, my favourite one of my favourite biases uh, is this idea. Have you heard of one called the pratfall effect? Nope. Lay it so on the, us. Uh, so the pratfall effect. Um, it's an experiment back in the, done by Elliot, Elliot Aronson, who was this professor at Harvard uh, in, the, in the 1960s. And in 1966, he runs his classic experiment where he gets a colleague of his to take part in a quiz he has given his colleague all the answers so the guy does amazingly well gets 92 percent of the questions right wins the quiz by miles looks like a genius but then as the quiz is finishing the guy makes what american would call a pratfall a small blunder as he's standing up he spills a cup of coffee down himself so aronson's recorded this entire incident great quiz performance and then the blunder he plays it to people but he edits the, uh, the, the clip, so there are two versions. One has everything, and the other version edits out the mistake. And when he asks listeners uh, how appealing they find the contestant, the contestant is seen as significantly more appealing if people have heard the mistake as well as the amazing performance. And Aronson calls this the, the pratfall effect, this idea that we prefer people or relevantly for advertisers products who exhibit a flaw and i and i love it because i think one it runs very counter to what people uh assume and then secondly if you look at the greatest ads through history it's interesting quite how many of them have had this insight at their very heart what like so um you go all the way back to probably the, the, the earliest was 1959 vw now, the classic campaign ad age said ad age said was the greatest campaign of the twentieth century, where they had flaws at the very heart, ugly as only skin deep. Um, you've got more uh, moving more recent. Well, a little bit more recently it was Avis. We're number two, so we try harder. Essentially, admitting- <laughs> uh, Guinness admitting they're slow. Good things come to those who wait. Stella reassuring expensive, uh, and more recently, K- you know, KFC tweeting that. Their fries are damn awful. The fri- uh, our fries yeah, suck. Yeah, yeah. You told us they suck. So give us yeah. give us six months. We'll come back with a better recipe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's a. And I think what those advertisers have realised is that probably the biggest hurdle you have as an advertiser. Well, probably the biggest hurdle is being noticed. Um, and actually, the pratfall effect's good for that because if everyone else is bragging. If you are distinctive, you're much more likely to be noticed. And there's lots of evidence about that. There's a wonderful experiment uh, called the von Restorff effect, which, which proves that. Uh, so it, it gets you noticed. The next biggest hurdle as an advertiser is the believability. You know, most people assume advertisers, well, they, you know, the cynics assume they lie, which is not true. But it, most people assume that advertisers are at least putting a, a positive spin on the truth. Mm-hmm. So the amazing thing with the pratfall effect is if you uh, admit a flaw, you've tangibly demonstrated your honesty, and then all your other claims become that much more believable. Mm. And then I think the final thing it does, which is excellent, is those brilliant advertisers don't admit a flaw randomly. They, they go to great lengths to, to think, well, what's our core strength? And then they think about a flaw that 
uh, it's the mirror image of that strength. Because in many cultures, flaws and strengths are two sides of the, work, the same coin. You know, so Stella say they're expensive, but that's because they know people assume that expensive things are better quality. Or VW go out and say, yes, we're ugly, but then they follow up by saying, well, that's because we don't care about aesthetic fripperies. We care about engineering excellence. So it's this fascinating approach. Yeah, I find it so interesting because even though it's got all this evidence and there's so much more than just the Aronson experiment, advertisers very, very rarely use it. You know, if you pick up, if you watch a um, few hours of TV tonight, you'll see, you probably won't see a single advertiser admitting a weakness. Mm. It's all very well and good saying the best ones use it, but they are in the, they are in the minority. Is it a way to humanise brands? I think that's one of the other things that it does. As you say, if, if you admit a weakness, then you, I think, are changing that kind of power mm. dynamic. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> well, I mean, looking at um, some of the biggest memes and things that come out of TV, apart from the fact that it's funny moments, but if you look at the stuff that comes off Love Island or um, mm. it's like dancing on ice, celebrity dancing on ice and stuff like that. It's always someone pulling an awkward face or tripping up a step or yeah, yeah, doing yeah. something like that. Like no one ever loves the person who's flawless because I don't think that they're able to relate. And I think that that's the same with the businesses as well. And obviously you don't want Boeing, well, this is probably quite timely, like given how many issues they've had recently with that 357 Max or whatever it's called. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't want Boeing to be admitting like, our planes aren't that safe, but they'll get you there fast. Like, yes. no, 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 don't, don't talk about that weakness, Mr. Boeing. Like, let's not bring that one up. Talk about the fact that that Harley Davidson one that you posted on your Twitter the other day. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Amazing. So there's a, a Harley Davidson advert, guy on a bike uh, on big open road, and it says at the bottom, somewhere 35,000 <laughs> feet in the air, a man is trying to open a small packet of peanuts. Yeah. He's like, fucking genius. Like, absolute genius. Um, but yeah, you, you're totally right. Humanizing yeah. the brands and, and being it's, strategic about it. Yes, yeah. So I think you, I think you spot on with that. And two things: as you say humanizing the brand, and Aronson, or it may have been one of the follow experiments, talks about if someone seems perfect, then people want see them as a threat and want to knock them down mm. uh, a peg or two. If someone's flawed, then you know they're not they're not a threat, and you can um, uh, you're much more likely to warm to them. Yeah. But the other part you mentioned, I think you're spot on of you don't just pick a flaw randomly. You know, Stella didn't say it tasted awful. As you say, you know, VW <laughs> which wouldn't does. say it's <laughs> yeah. VW uh, didn't say that we're lying about our emissions, which they were. At the, yeah, at the, uh, <laughs> Strategically put the, your weaknesses. Yes. Yeah. And you, know, you don't have to invent one. You know, there are all of those things like Guinness, I'm sure we're told in research group after research group, how annoying it was that people had to wait for them. Mm-hmm. But rather than just brush that under the carpet as most brands would do you know they thought well people know this it's true might as well try and get some mileage out of it yeah Mm. how can we play off the back of it and definitely using some of those things as an indicator of quality that's what's happening isn't it it's price is an indicator of quality the wait time is an indicator of quality it's what is a characteristic people want and how can we make our weakness be some sort of a signal that that is an important part of it i was talking about guinness i was recently in america and i was at the united states national whitewater rafting center which is like anyone who's ever worn patagonia 
Like that's where they will, that's, that's their heaven. Yeah. That's where they die and go to. It's like mountain biking and hill climbing and white water rafting and all this stuff. And at the, the, they don't have a bar that serves alcohol, but they have a bar which has numerous cold brew coffees on tap. And I was like, Oh God, I'm going <laughs> to take this. And sure enough, they have one which, um, takes the same time as Guinness to pour and that's its advertising strategy. Oh, it comes okay. Out, it's yeah, like yeah. a pint of just under a pint of cold brew coffee. But it settles the same way. It gets poured the same way. They have to tilt the cup, the cup in the same way. They serve yep. it with the logo turned towards uh, you and okay. push it across. I was like, See, "This is cool." That is that is fascinating because um, I'm not quite linked the two, but there is another bias called the IKEA effect by Dan Ariely and Norton, um, and what they talk about is generally. Removing friction, making things easier is a massively underrated um, approach for marketers and people who want behavior change. So, that, However, they, they argue there are rare occasions when you should try and make things harder. Mm. And at the beginning of the paper, they talk about a famous story from General Mills and Betty Crocker. I don't know if you've heard about this one. So it was, it was back in the, the, the 1950s. You've got more... Um, uh, households where both men and women are working, so there's less time to cook cakes for the, for kids. So the General Mills think, well, you know, let, how do we tap into this uh, changing behaviour? Well, let's make a super simple cake mix. A cake mix, all you have to do, tear the top of the packet open, pour it in a tin, add some water, chuck it in the oven, mm. and you've got your lovely cake half an hour later. They launch this. And despite it seeming being absolutely spot on for the era, cake sales are awful. They then ponder why this is for a while and they begin to think, well, we've made this too easy because a cake isn't just about providing calories for your family. It's about showing your love. And if you've made something really, really easy, it doesn't show love because, you know, part of that is going through a bit of rigmarole Mm. so they then follow up with a new cake mix in which they artificially make the cake mix more complicated they make it harder to bake so now you've got still got your cake mix in your packet still tear it open you still pour it in the tin this time you have to crack an egg into it (laughs) and now by making it harder once they've done that that's when the cake uh, mix sales start to take off cost and And, signaling yeah i think well Maybe the cost is time there. I mean, the, the mm-hmm. Norton and Ariely call it the IKEA effect, that the more effort we put into something, the more we appreciate it. Mm-hmm. And I think there's an element that in, in your cold brew coffee story. Um, and I've heard, I've heard a few of them, actually. Someone else told me, and so this would be interesting if any listeners know if this is, um, this is true or not. But someone said to me, and it's been two separate web designers, so reason that I trust it. They said, look, you know when you go on those – Uh, travel comparison sites Mm -hmm. they said aren't you suspicious about the amount of time it takes for them to search the sites they said look they could do that much quicker but they just add this second or two of friction in to make the search for those uh hotels or airplanes uh feels like it's been far more authoritative far more comprehensive this is how hard we've got to scrape the data to get you a deal so i'm not going i'm going to make sure that i keep this sufficiently anonymous that it won't rumble in 
I know a person yeah. who knows a person, and this person yeah. is currently working in a city doing some financial stuff. Yeah. As a part of this thing, he provides spreadsheets, very advanced spreadsheets with VLOOKUPs and all sorts of other things to do projections and forecasting yeah. that take into account a lot of very complicated variables. And what he's added into this spreadsheet is a macro that runs a loading bar. Now, yeah. you'll never know because I've managed to keep him sufficiently anonymous. Yeah. But if you are the person that's being served this Excel sheet, let me tell you that that loading bar is always three and a half seconds long, no matter how much data goes through, because yeah, yeah, yeah. it's just, that's it, his, that's it's his just an animation. Yeah. It's just an animation that yeah. he thought, well, if I had this in, it looks like I'm really fucking doing some work. Like yeah, crunching yeah. the numbers behind here. Yeah. Meanwhile, his computer's like having a tab. It's out the back. Yeah. This process is out the back, just having a cigarette yeah. going, ah, oh, we fucking finished three and a half minutes ago, three and a half seconds ago. Um, but yeah, that, you're totally right. I think, um, Rory Sutherland talks about, um, the difference between pick your own strawberries and cheap strawberries. Ooh, okay, go on. Yeah. So you can imagine the same yeah. thing that, uh, if price is an indicator of quality, but if price is offset with some cost that uh, you yeah. have to incur yeah. in the yeah. creation of the product, you yeah. can sell strawberries for half the price of everybody else's strawberries if no one is suspicious about the fact, hang on, why yes. the fuck are these strawberries so cheap? So, like, oh, yeah, well, you've yeah, got yeah. to go pick them yourself. The same yes. is with Ikea. Why, why, is, why is Ikea furniture so cheap? Oh, I don't need to worry about the quality. It's because yeah. I've got to put it together myself. That's why I've got yes. to do it. I think you're absolutely right there. And if there is one category of brands that should always be thinking about using the pratfall effect, I think it is low-cost brands. Because if they do nothing, people will assume their yeah, their products are shit. Seen it again and again working with uh, brands that have maybe had a revolutionary way of bringing their products to the market. They've done something really clever, which means they're much cheaper. And then they'll get their tracking back and that and off they often come back with very low quality scores because people work to rule of thumb as you say if it's cheap it must be shit and i think it was i'm sure well, it was rory who had this brilliant explanation for the success of budget airlines you know his argument is look what they had to do when they launched because they were such a strange thing you know one day you were flying across europe for 100 quid and now it only costs a fiver mm. they had to go out and say their service was awful if they hadn't people would assume the cost savings might have been at something like um, their safety yeah or <laughs> secondhand uh, aeroflot jets yeah uh, so they'd have never stepped foot in them you go out and say well actually our service is awful and you know think back to michael o'leary about how much he kind of pushed that that message if you do that people think well that's a fair enough trade-off and they're happy to, to set foot on the planes yeah. yes i think you're right if you, if you ever have a low-cost product You've got to be thinking about, well, how can we explain this price to people? And if we can't try and explain it with a bit of a humble brag, people assume that's too good to be true. Need to go and find an inconsequential weakness. Yeah. You know, like TK Maxx admit that their stores are shambolic. Oh, my God. It but is better, chaos. Yeah. Better to admit that than people go away thinking it's the quality of the product that's awful. Yeah. I mean, TK Maxx, anybody, mm. I have some friends who shop in TK Maxx. And it is, to me, it is what, if an anxiety attack manifested itself <laughs> as a store, yeah. that's what TK Maxx yeah. would be. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's no logic to it. You've got the scented candles next to the flip-flops and beachwear. Yeah. Are you like, who on earth? Is that? It's like a drunk child designed this yeah. store. Yeah. Unbelievable. 
Well, I think they're, I don't know if they're still running, but certainly they had a, a wave of advertising about six months ago, which said something along the lines of the small prices you pay for the small prices you pay. Ah, uh, that's very clever. Like, they might, yeah, there might be a Senate Campbell next to a flip-flop, but if you put that bit of effort in, you'll unearth, you'll unearth a bargain. So when, mm. when someone works in an ad agency, right, and they're coming up with the marketing communications for this, that small prices you pay for the small prices you pay, for instance, as a tagline, has probably has probably come by one person, perhaps. It's not multiple people that have come up with small prices you pay. It'll just be some guy. Because I've done advertising for a long time for my own stuff, the idea of being the guy that comes up with that, no matter whether it makes any difference to my paycheck, gives me such a figurative stiffy. Like to think <laughs> I could be the guy that did the small prices you pay for the small prices you pay. You're like, fuck. Yes, yes, that's that's my, that's my month made. Like, because you just come up with this awesome, awesome tagline. Do you get that sense sometimes when you kind of you finally hit upon the right brand message, the right trigger, the right caption, the right everything, and it just comes together like that? So, so my speciality is slightly different. Mine is around well, how you apply uh, behavioural science to marketing. Ah, there's, de- there's definitely a link, but no I'm, sure, I'm sure that's, that's copyright. yeah. That's absolutely the case. Yeah, if I if I tried to to write that line, it would have been about a paragraph long with uh, <laughs> yeah, six spelling mistakes in. Yeah. yeah. So, what else have you seen recently? Has anything else caught your eye recently that you've been looking at in terms of advertising? Um, I think the I mean the interest the big interest for me is I think that advertising is undergoing a bit of a change at the moment, and this might be wishful thinking, but there was such. Um, euphoria a few years ago about how the rise of data and the opportunities of targeting was going to change advertising that I think um, there was so much overclaim. I think brands got very excited and then a lot of those benefits didn't materialize. What I think we're now seeing is 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 the kind of pendulum swinging back from a fascination with technology and it's not going to disappear completely, of course not, but swinging more towards some of those eternal truths of uh, that psychology identifies. So I, I, I think that's that to me is a, uh, an, an exciting area at the moment that more and more advertisers are thinking, well, how can we unearth uh, insights into our audience by harnessing this field of psychology of behavioral science yeah rory said on the podcast that mm. i did with him uh silicon valley sees everything as an optimization oh. problem so well that, that, that's sorry i thought you were gonna get because what i think rory's brilliant often at talking about is sometimes when you talk about silicon valley or or or, or big tech is that their success is often attributed solely to their technological brilliance but often, and I don't know if he covered it because I know you did a great podcast with him. And I can't remember whether you, you covered this or not. But often their success has some quite clever psychological insights to their heart as well. So Uber, for example, of course, you know, the functionality behind that, the, you know, it, it is amazing. But there are some really clever psychological points there as well that there is research, and I can't remember the, the name of the psychologist, but there's quite a lot of research that shows that um, specific weights, as in I know I've got to wait five minutes, is much less painful than an unspecified weight that ends up being five minutes. Okay. 
It's one of the great things that Disney do. They, when you get to that, twenty minutes from this it, point. Yes, exactly. So people can quit worrying about whether they're getting it to the front or not, and they can do something else for twenty minutes and have a chat, <laughs> and then so it removes the pain. So they were brilliant on that. But the other bit that I think they're amazing at, and I think this is key to their success, <laughs> is the means of payment. Now there is lots of evidence that the the more distance you put between someone getting your product and them handing over cash, the cheaper it feels. So, you know, when you go to a casino, they don't expect you to be putting down £10 notes on the table. They get you to turn that cash into chips. Mm. So people become less price sensitive. When people have credit cards, they become less price sensitive than cash. I'm going to guess that'll be when when you're abroad as well and you're using just plastic this is everyone yeah. makes the same joke hey, it looks like plastic <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, it's and fucking not mate it's worth yeah. just as much as your money yes. yeah 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 but you're not quite sure on the uh, conversion rate and you, yeah. yeah yeah i think i've never seen any studies on that but i bet you i bet you're right uh the one i've done which was it might have been the first ever experiment i ran with it, uh, a lovely researcher called claire linford and it was about contactless payment so we waited until people came out from uh, coffee shops, mini marts, little delis. And then we stopped and said, can you answer three questions? And we said, how much have you paid? Can we see your receipt? And no, sorry, sorry. How much have you paid? What was your means of payment? And then can we see your receipt? Mm-hmm. And so we compared what they thought they'd paid with their receipt was what they'd actually paid. Uh-huh. And then we cut the data by means of payment. So people pay with cash three quarters-ish, I think, uh, knew exactly what they paid. Mm. Those who don't overestimated their spend by about, I think it was about 10%. Mm. Credit cards, two-thirds knew exactly what they'd spent. And when they didn't, they was like to underestimate as overestimate. Contactless, less than half could remember. And they invariably underestimated their spend. So you had this swing of about 15% in memory of spend between cash, mm. overestimating, contactless, underestimating. Mm. So... That, to me, you know, in Uber, I would say is more extreme than even contactless. People treat it as free because there is, is so little friction. There's so little um, pain of payment that people treat it like, as you say, monopoly. It's like monopoly money. Buy it now, now on Amazon. Yeah, yeah. Buy, yeah. Oh, that, the, that, uh, one, one click, one click yeah. ordering, sorry. Um, it's the yeah, fact I'm, that you can swipe to the right. All you need to do is press a button on Amazon swipe to the right and then two goose down pillows arrive in your house the next day you're yeah. like oh my god this is like the year 3000 shit like- yes. <laughs> there's even studies i mean it goes as far as um i think it yes it's sybil yang sybil yang did a study on restaurant menus where she showed if you take off the it would be well she's american so it'd be dollar signs if you take off the dollar signs people become eight percent less price sensitive you know it can be tiny tiny wow. uh, tweaks that will affect that degree of price sensitivity. And price sensitivity is hugely important to brands. Because you know, if you're operating, and hopefully I'm getting my maths right here, but if you're operating at a 20% margin, <laughs> getting an extra 1% on the price is worth you know, <laughs> yeah. 5% extra in terms of, of sales. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, if you are a restaurant owner, actually, if you're going out for dinner tonight, have a look at the menu, see if there is or is not a pound sign on that, and that will yeah. tell you how well-versed the restaurant owner is yeah in behavioral economics and behavioral science and then give us a tweet and tell us because i want to find out although maybe in the because it's fascinating in the looking 
afar from some of these brands, there is often a question, well, were they applying behavioral science? Like I think in the menu case, a lot of it is um, maybe some people originally did it because they'd read about this Sybil Yang experimentation. Mm. But it looks cleaner as well. And I wonder if other people just copied it. Oh, that looks quite pretty. Nice. It looks a bit smarter. Mm. So it's, it's, it's hard to know. One, has someone applied it because of their knowledge of behavioral science? Two, it might be they've never studied the subject matter, but they are keen students of human nature. Mm. Like going back to the Prattfall effect, Elliot Aronson did that study in 1966. In 1959, it was seven years earlier that Bill Birnbach, you know, one of the great advertising creatives, that's when uh, he had run that VW campaign that admitted the flaws. Mm. Now, he, he came out with a phrase, a small admission gains a large acceptance, you know, before the academics had actually done the studying. Mm. So sometimes I think people are getting these ideas, you know, they're working day in, day out with uh, customers. You know, if then they're watching how people behave, then I think they pick them up through you know, osmosis rather than academic study. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you are right. There's this trickle-down effect of that. We find that in the industry I work in, which is nightlife promotion. Ah, You only have a good idea for about a month because after a month, if it's that good of an idea, it's just been emancipated by everybody else. And, yeah. and you're like, oh, that was... <laughs> That was good until everyone else found out. And because it, the, the unique thing about the uh, nightlife industry is no, no one's protecting their intellectual property. No one's got contracts in place. It's the most, I actually believe it's the most Wild West industry, probably outside yeah, of yeah. the drug trade, that's still, yeah. that's still allowed to exist because no one, everything is up for grabs all yeah. the time from night names to taglines to intellectual property to staff to events to everything everything's up for grabs and yeah. it's a, a ruthlessly interesting uh sort of experiment to to see what happens when people try and hold on to ideas that they've come up with yes um for nightlife so i didn't know that was your uh your, your area um maybe the the bias that's most regularly applied uh, by nightclubs is the famous kind of attempts at building social proof. Mm -hmm. You know, build up so social proof. This idea of we don't make our decisions fully individually. We look around to what others are doing and things that are popular become more popular still. So the classic nightclub trick of that was always you know don't let people in straight away. Build up the queue outside so it feels like it's uh, appealing. You're giving away uh, all of our secrets here. Right? <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's exactly, that's people are onto. Yeah, uh, but that—that's—I think that is a fascinating idea because it's one of the most proven uh, biases in social psychology. Um, Childine is showing it with towel reuse, Christakis with smoking, uh, HMRC with tax repayment rates, Fang with um, restaurant menus. Again and again, the um, if you tell people what the popular course of behavior is, it becomes more popular still. But why I think it's really interesting is that a lot of advertisers are very literal in their interpretation of that insight. You know, so you go out and you see a uh, beer brand saying they're Britain's most popular or, you know, Tunnock's chocolate bar selling 5 million a week mm. or Oracle that 97% of CEOs use them. And I think that's all very well and good. But what marketers should aspire to is 
not seeing the behavioral science experiments as the end point, I think what they should aspire to is um, thinking of them just as stimulus for good ideas. And then if they apply their strengths of creative thinking, that's when the best ideas happen. So seeing that you've got your white earbuds on, that's probably my, the white earbuds are probably my favorite example of a brand taking social proof and using it laterally. Mm. Think back to when iPod launched, what, 2001-ish. When they launched, they were not the market leader. You know, lots of other brands had got out there first. There's no way they could honestly go out and say, uh, you know, we're the most popular brand bias. Mm. But the other brands made a error of uh, not being very visible. So if you were so, when people had Sony MP3 players, no one knew. You know, if you saw someone on the tube or on the train, all you would see is their indistinguishable black earphones. You know, the MP3 player itself was in the person's pocket. You had no idea if it was Sony or Motorola. What Apple did so brilliantly was making a massive play of all their advertising focused on the bright white earphones, all the chart advertising focused on that. Very, very distinctive only person who did it so as soon as you saw white earphones you knew someone was listening to apple mm-hmm. they looked like they were the market leader long before they were and that set in this virtuous circle set and train this virtuous circle of social proof yeah so those lateral harnessings the lateral harnessing of these biases i think becomes really exciting when it's through the design or through the insinuation yeah so <clears throat> you're stranded on an island yep and you're allowed to take five biases with you or you're allowed to be aware of five biases so i'm going to ask you to choose your five favorite children oh, okay okay well we've had the pratfall effect is that one of your top five is that, that is that would be that would be, yeah I'd, I'd be lying if it wasn't the pratfall i think i love it okay this, yeah who's going to be who's going to be number two and why and let's go through it okay so the second one i probably have saying like price relativity okay so this is the idea that consumers don't have a fixed conception of value What's good value? You know, so I think in Rory Southern's words, there's no one walking around the shops thinking they're prepared to pay one pound per unit of happiness, whether <laughs> it's a coat or a pair of trainers. It'd just be too complex. Yeah. So what Daniel Kahneman talks about often, he says, look, when people have a complex problem, like, is this thing good value? Rather than try and weigh that up in a very complex way, they, re- they replace the complex calculation with a much simpler uh calculation a calculation that's almost as good but much simpler and the simpler calculation is what did i pay for something similar in the past if i'm now being asked to pay more this new thing is bad value if i'm now being asked to pay less this new thing is great value now that should interest marketers because it means that people's conception of value is not an absolute thing it's a relative thing it depends what your comparison set is so if you can change the comparison set for your product then um, you can change people's willingness to pay by orders of magnitude mm. have you got the, an example have you, could you give us an example of that a recent probably not the biggest one but a recent one would be have you seen this like seed lip non-alcoholic gin no, no. <laughs> and when it's not an offer, it's 25 quid. Okay. Uh, and everything they do about it is, you know, the brand, the imagery, the bottle it comes in, the fact they call it a non-alcoholic 
spirit it uh, compares it to other um, alcoholic drinks. So when you're comparing it with a gin, you know, 25 quid's expensive, but it's in line with an artisan gin. And you know, it sells reasonably well. But if you think about what that product is, it's essentially an adult cordial. Mm-hmm. You know, if you stuck next to Ribena, if that's sold not in the gin aisle, but in the Ribena aisle, and yeah. there's no way on earth any right-minded consumer would pay more than a fiver. Mm-hmm. You know, but because people would suddenly be saying, well, okay, it's a bit fancy than Ribena, but the, you know, the two pounds would be their mm-hmm. comparison set. Mm-hmm. They might pay double. They're mm-hmm. not going to pay 10 times as much. Yeah. By changing the comparison set to gins, they change consumers' willingness to pay by orders of magnitude. You know, the more form, the famous example, probably, you know, the, the example that's made billions of pounds, though, along that Roy Sutherland often talks about is, is an espresso. Now, his argument there is what they have brilliantly done by selling in pods is change the comparison set because a pod gives you a cup size serving. And as soon as people think of cups of coffee, the comparison set with Nespresso is Starbucks and a flat white. So the 50 pence that Nespresso want for a Lungo pod of coffee looks mm-hmm. great value mm-hmm. compared to £2.5 for a Starbucks flat white. If, and I reckon 99.9% of marketers would have done this, if they had launched in bags of coffee, if they'd sold their Nespresso powder in like a big bag of coffee like Dow Egberts or mm-hmm. Cafe Direct, how much do you reckon a four, standard 474 gram bag of coffee would have cost. Well, it's, you're going to be able to get a little bit over the top of what it is already, right? You're not going to be talking Starbucks prices. Well, a, if you if they sold 474 grand bags of coffee, that would cost 60 pounds. Now, there is no way on earth, again, oh any would go into Sainsbury's, push aside a 10 pound bag of Dow Egbert's away and take home a 60 pound bag of Nespresso. It'd feel like so wasteful, it'd feel morally wrong. Now, if, but that's not what they did. You know, the 50 pence for a pod feels like a great value compared to Starbucks. The 60 pound for a bag, which is exactly the same per gram price, that would have felt a rip off because it would have been compared to a different collection of items. So that to me is one of the most fascinating biases because you can change people's willingness to pay. I mean, those examples are pretty, but you've changed people's willingness to pay by orders of make sure about 10. Wow. You know, that's phenomenally. So this profitable. is where, this is where I, I'd never heard it before, but the first ever podcast that I heard Rory Sutherland, Rory, you may be listening. So I'm going to send this to you. I apologize for your ears just like burning so, so hard that they're coming off. But if you are listening and you haven't heard episode 49 with Rory Sutherland, it was at the start of the year and it was a force of nature. You got to go watch it. It'll be in the show notes below. Um, I remember that he was discussing about so many of these different elements. And I think that the fact there was nothing analogous in the two situations you've got, there's nothing that someone can use. What's analogous to alcohol-free gin? Well, when it's in the yeah. gin aisle, nothing. And what's analogous to Nespresso pod? Well, I, I can't work it out. No one probably actually knows how many grams are in a teaspoon yeah, of yeah. coffee that's instant coffee. Da, 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 da. Like. Yeah. Yeah, you'd, you'd go insane if you – I mean, people often use the word irrationality about some of these biases, but it's, it's a strange word to use because it would be insane to go into the supermarket and try and make all these calculations and weigh up all of these things and not just compare it to what's in front of you. You know, you'd spend – your whole you know, spend a whole day in a supermarket if you if you try to make all these calculations. You have an existential crisis. <laughs> yes, yeah, you would. Which yeah. I which I often have in Asda. Um, but yeah, the the Rory Sutherland point is the fact he talks. Mm, he, he says yep. 
alchemy, right? And I think Ooh, yes, the yeah, alchemy pretty, relation yep. that he pulls out, the first ever time that I heard this used, and remembering I've done, I did a master's in international marketing at Newcastle University. Yep. I'd been at uni for five years. I've done advertising my entire life. Um, I, I'd never thought of it like this. But what he says is that advertising is a kind of alchemy because it allows you to create value creation literally out of nothing. So the Nespresso... Uh, change in price by the way that they have pitched themselves and the style in which they've put the product across. There's no carbon footprint. There's no increased labor. There's no, there's no cost of any kind outside of its ability to simply be a unique kind of offering. So yeah. you're able to create value from nothing. And that's where he gets the alchemy idea from, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, 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 an absolutely brilliant book. I think you're absolutely right. And the, there's also a value in the, what people taste is not necessarily just the product itself. So if you're talking about Nespresso or beer or uh, food, people taste what they expect to taste. So there's a whole series of experiments done by a slightly controversial professor called Brian Wansink, where a different story before or a different label to a product, to a food mm. creates a very different taste. So um, if you tell someone, uh, a wine is 50 quid. And I think this was Dan O'Reilly, actually, rather than uh, one sink. If you tell them a wine's 50 quid, they'll like it much more than the, exactly the same wine if they're told it's a fiver. Mm. Um, one sink did stuff around um, labelling. So you tell people a wine, exactly, again, exactly the same. Everyone served the same wine. If they're told it's from uh, Dakota, North Dakota, they'll tell you it's awful. If they're told it's from California, they'll tell you it's lovely. Mm. If they describe a, uh, a soup with loads of fancy adjectives, then it's rated higher and people will pay more and uh, think it tastes better than if it's just described in very plain terms. So, you know, yes, people, you know, add, adding that thought and effort to the design, the advertising, the labeling, the packaging, it creates value in people's heads. And why is that any less valuable than the, uh, the enjoyment that's created by playing around with the, the, you know, the chemical and the f- phys- physical, uh, physical makeup? Yeah. I agree. So we've got the pratfall effect. We've got what was the second cost rel- relativity? One? Price relativity. Price yeah, relativity. Price relativity. Uh, yeah. Who else? So we're on the we're on the island. Okay, we're, we on know, third, we're on third. We know these, how these are, to yeah. trip over, and we know to spill coffee on ourselves. <laughs> yeah. We yeah. know to make things unanalogous to other products, so that the customers <laughs> yeah. don't know what's going on. What else is happening? Yeah. Uh, for different reasons, I would probably have uh, nine enders. <laughs> so <laughs> just. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. so uh, how old are you? By any chance? Thirty-one. Ah, damn. Uh, we should have done this podcast. We should have done it in eight years' time. Cool. Uh, so, nine enders is the idea that from Adam Alter and Hal Hirschfield that people whose age ends in nine are particularly likely to make big, major lifestyle decisions. <laughs> oh my god. So, so, I mean, when I exactly my reaction when I first read this was, this sounds it's hokum. Uh, and at first I wasn't persuaded by their initial, well, what, what he initially talks about is, well, we proved this by running a huge global survey. I think it's 40 odd thousand people and people, uh, were much more likely to agree with the statement. Uh, I've made a big lifestyle change in the last 12 months if their age ends in a nine, okay. but there's all sorts of problems with claim data. So that, that's a little bit weak, but what they then did was brilliant. They looked at loads of observed data sets to try and test their hypothesis so they look at um, first-time marathon runners, and they're 48% more likely to do a marathon the first time when their age ends in nine. Uh-huh. 
they look at uh, I guess what they look at uh, affairs websites. They look at Ashley Madison. I mean, this this I mean, it's not a great affairs website. They gave their eight million database of men to these researchers, and they found that men were eighteen percent more likely to join this website when their age ends in nine. They even looked, and this gets a bit more depressing. They looked at um, American suicide data, and there is a small but statistically significant uplift in suicides when people's age ends in nine. Now, what they then argue so robust study because they're, they're prioritizing reserved data over claim data they argue that this happens because people put um, they don't treat all time as equal some moments are given disproportionate importance so when people are approaching the turn of a decade that has big cultural significance so in that 12 months before people are at least thinking well how's my life going and a lot loads of people think well it's absolutely fine don't make any changes but there's a large enough proportion who think things are going poorly, they make these big radical changes. Mm. Now, part of the reason I take this to the desert island is I like this because it's practical. You know, 10 years ago, knowing that as an advertiser, well, what the hell do you do with it? Now, it is very, very simple. You know, loads of digital media owners capture people's birthday. It's very, very easy to target people. Mm. By. But the other reason and this is probably why it makes it on the top five, I love it, is there's a really strong economic reason for using this bias. Like if you're a, if you're the government trying to get people to stop smoking, if you're a diet brand, if you're a gym brand, if you're probably a seller of luxury um, convertibles, you know, targeting people whose age ends in nine when they are, you know, mulling over the direction of their life, it's probably a very, very personal time. But the reason I love it from the economics of it is media when advertisers buy media space it's increasingly bought through an auction so in the milliseconds before you see an ad an auction's gone on and the winner gets to serve their ad there if you are in an if you are using the same data signals as every other brand and most brands will default to income you know 1834s abc ones if you're just buying on the same metrics as everyone else well when you're in a busy auction, you tend to overpay. What you need to do is isolate a factor that no one else is using, mm. like night enders, bid on that, and you're much more likely to get a bargain. So I think nine enders makes it because at first I was very doubtful. I love the creativity that Alter and Hirschfeld showed to test this point. And then I love the fact that it's both practical and there's some economics behind it. I can't get over the name. Yeah. I can't Nothing get over the fact it's called Nine Enders. Yeah. Like, well, it was, it was discovered by academics, not marketers. Well, that's the maybe, thing. They maybe just they need to rebrand. Uh, like, there are around other marketers. Yeah. Like, mate, we've come up with this thing. What do you think yeah. of... What do you Just like, hear me out. Hear me out. Just wait. What do we think of uh, as a name? It's nine Enders. You'd be like, right. Love the idea. <laughs> Great. Just change the title out and we're, and we're yeah. sweet. Yeah. We're sweet. Um, yeah, I mean, I, See, remember I, back to our very first chat. I've got no right to talk to anyone about naming. Yeah, so, that's uh, true. That's very true. You got that wrong. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't called like Astro Tenders, though, was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so we've got those. We've got nine enders. We've got uh, price uh, cost relativity, and we've got uh, the pratfall effect. What else is what else is in on the on the island? The island. Well, I would have, and this is. 
It's related. So uh, the danger of claim data, I think, you know, and touching on that with um, uh, Nine Enders, <laughs> there is a lovely experiment by Adrian North, who's at the University of Leicester. And, um, and his experiment was around playing different music in the wine aisle of a supermarket. So some occasions he plays you know, stereotypically French music, accordion stuff. Mm-hmm. Sometimes he plays stereotypically German music brass bands and things mm-hmm. and then he monitors the proportion of wine sales so ignores all the other nations just looks at french and german wine sales mm-hmm. when the french music plays 77 percent of the wine from those two countries is french 27 percent german when the german music plays 73 percent is german 27 percent uh 27 french so the the, the the nationality being bought sways massively because of this small environmental cue so part of it you know he's he he's experiment is mainly about the music and the importance of these environmental cues but what's interesting from another perspective is what he does next as people are leaving the supermarket he stops them and he says uh did you buy any wine did you buy any french or german wine and then if they've said yes to both those questions, he says, well, why did you buy that wine? And only 2% of people say they bought the wine because of the music. And even when he asks them directly, even when he says, look, did, did the music influence you? 86% of people deny flat out the music had any effect at all. <laughs> now that, I think if you're a marketer, if you ta- actually, if you change one thing from this podcast, it should be based on that experiment, which is be very, very careful about taking customers' claims at face value. You know, because if you run that test and then, are, you know, or, or you were thinking about that running that test and did what most marketers do, which is survey people and then, you know, listen to the survey results. If you went and said, would the music, changing the music influence you? Everyone says no, you don't bother doing it. So if you're a marketer, be very sceptical about survey results, focus groups, directly asking people, and certainly be sceptical about taking those claims at face value. And instead, I would say the thing to learn from psychology is this methodology of not listening to claims, but setting up these test and control experiments. Mm -hmm. A naturalistic um, uh, experiment, you know, in the wine aisle, for example, if you're a wine brand, Keep everything the same except for one variable, the music, yeah. and then any difference in sales or whatever behavior you want, you attribute back to that uh, changed variable. That's a far better way to unearthing genuine motivations. Daniel Kahneman talks about this a lot, that we don't, we don't know our own biases, right? Yeah. We, don't, we, we haven't got a clue about our own motivations for doing particular things. Um, you mentioned about alcohol in supermarkets. I haven't seen this in the UK, but I was recently in America. And in America, they have bars from like a pub not that far behind the fruit and veg aisle. So you hit fruit and veg, then you hit a bar, and then you hit like bread. Yeah. The number of dads that I'd seen that were there who'd obviously said to their partners right don't worry don't worry darling i'll uh i'll i'll take the kids i'll take the kids for this one are you sure yeah. are you sure you've worked all week no 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 don't worry don't worry and yeah. then one of the one of the trolleys <laughs> oh my god this trolley right and it's double child seat thing yeah. at the front 
cup holder at the back. Nice, nice. <laughs> and there's this dad just going around with an IPA. He's got like a lovely <laughs> brew dog or like yeah. a blue moon or something yeah. like that. And he's just sipping away, obviously throwing loads of stuff in he doesn't need. Like he's just loosened his spending muscles a little bit. Yeah, and he's, yeah, like, yeah. he's, he's yeah. got like, f- like loads of fajita mix and things he's never going to use. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was great. Yeah. So- sod removing the, uh, the, pr- the pound signs, the dollar signs from a menu. He's getting a bit Yeah, yeah giving pissed. people... T- Two pints of IPA, that'll get them price insensitive. Yeah. You know, the other bit, and I can't, I think it was a Paco Underhill, I think that might be his name. Apologies, I've got, I've got that wrong. But he wrote a book, and I, th- I think it's there that I first read, and it might be worth double-checking this one to make sure it's true, but the reason why uh, supermarkets have, because you mentioned, even in that example, that the fruit and veg comes first, mm. which is completely impractical if you think about it. If you go, if the first thing you see is delicate, soft, squidgy fruit and veg, mm. the last place you want that is the bottom of your yep. trolley when all the heavy stuff's going to go in front. But there is an idea in psychology called moral licensing, which is if we do something good, you know, ethically right, virtuous, uh, like going to the gym, uh, having some vitamins, we often overcompensate. So you get people feeling like they've been very healthy with their fruit and veg. That might be the reason for having that right at the beginning. Mm. So then compensate with biscuits and treats and whatever else. So there's there's an awful lot of psychology that goes into the design of supermarkets, right? With shelf height and the different ways that prices are displayed. I, I seem to remember one of the very few things that I can remember from my degree, which I paid 27 grand for, um, is is uh, a map about how customers typically walk down aisles. And it's similar to if you were to take a ping pong ball or a bowling ball, put the guardrails up and throw it at Bounce an angle. Yeah, and it, yeah. it, you, you would see just this angle that's almost the angle of attack is the angle of exit. And people yeah, yeah. dink, dink. And they just go the way all the way up. I, rem- yeah. I remember seeing that. Now it was first off, I, it was at Newcastle University's marketing department, and I'm, I'm, I'm unsure how many accolades they've got, so it might have been wrong. Um, but that I, I'm, I'm fascinated with the design of supermarkets, and I often yeah, try and find myself like catching, like, oh, what are what are they doing this week? Like, I bought, I bought, recently purchased a 867 gram bag of Crave cereal just because. I was like, that's the largest bag of Crave cereal I've <laughs> yeah, ever yeah, seen in my life. Yeah, I've got to yeah. buy it. Well, <laughs> inside, of that bag of, inside of that yeah, bag yeah. of Crave, Crave cereal is just multiples of smaller bags of Crave cereal that I've had before. There's nothing unique yeah, yeah, in yeah. that. I don't even think it was that cheap. Like, I'm just like, oh, oh look at that. Uh, and uh, well, it, I mean, I, I have heard people arguing that... Uh, one of the reasons it's it's easier to change the size of your products than put the price up. So if you reduce the size of your crisps or your sweets, people are less likely to stop buying you than if you put up the price for the same. Or if it's a massive bag, Mm. well then again, what do you compare it to? You know, I know, you know, for me, crisp is my weakness. (laughs) A hundred gram bag, you know, I'm reckoning that should be about a pound, pound 50. If it's, 150 75 you know suddenly my benchmarks out out the window uh, yeah well i guess when red bull first launched right there this oh, weird absolutely. can oddly yeah. sized can is it a 200 150 yeah but if it's thin cylindrical again it's breaking that link with coca-cola I can't, yeah you've got the 330 which yeah. is the coca-cola yeah. stubby yeah. Yeah. and then you'd have like a 
a monster equivalent, which is like a pint or something. That's like, no, yep. like a four, six, seven or something like that. But I think monster came much later. It was, yeah. 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 So once that link with comparing it with soft drinks is broken, then you can gradually drift into it. It's mm. like craft beer. When craft beer launched, you never, ever saw, uh, or I certainly never saw, a craft beer selling in a 440 mil can because the link, it would have been too obvious that, what, they want four pounds, I can get a Johnson. <laughs> Six pence. So, they, so paradoxically, they make it smaller to be able to sell for more. Yeah. Now, very occasionally, you do see 440 mil cans, but that's because I think they've set up craft beer as being a different category, different price expectations yeah. than from real ale. Yeah, I do. I, I get that completely. One of the interesting things I wonder about, you were talking about how you can manipulate your GP on a product by... Uh, lowering the price, which means uh, sorry, lowering the volume, which means you've got less product inside of that. Now, yeah. a number of bar and club owners from around the country will know this problem, which is that something like Carlsberg, sorry Carlsberg, but Carlsberg's about the cheapest main beer that you can buy from yeah. uh, from a brewery with a sort of reputable name, um, and more than fifty percent of the cost of the beer comes from the bottle that it arrived in i think Bloody hell. so if yeah. you were to reduce the size of the bottle all that you would be concerned with is using or you would be equally concerned with using less glass yeah as you would be for using less beer yeah which is hilarious also on a side point i have managed to carlsberg like i get i get spat on for drinking carlsberg right like when i don't drink at the moment but when i do drink i tend to drink carlsberg and this is this weird artifact of years of working in student club nights where if i wanted to get the cheapest beer would always be carlsberg and if the if the club manager was going to give us a couple of beers while we were cashing up at the end he'd always bring in obviously the stuff that it doesn't really like it's 47 pence a unit or something plus that yeah like, well, i don't yeah. care about giving giving you like two quids worth of carlsberg for you and the couple of the lads that are cashing the till at the end of the night yeah. but oddly over time i've actually developed like a, a a weird like pavlov's dog type thing i'm like end of the night need a carlsberg and now yeah. that's even expanded itself out to the point where it's like i'm out on a night want a Carlsberg and everyone else will be like getting a Corona or getting something like Copperberg or something. I'm like, yeah. have you got any Carlsberg at the back, please? And I'm like, what are you drinking yeah. that for? I'm like, I, I, I don't know. I've, I've been promoting for like 13 years. Yeah. Leave me alone. Well, if anyone takes the mick uh, and people can be strangely snobby about, I think coffee and beer at the moment. Uh, I did a, we did a taste test. And I think the, the main reason we did the taste test, I think we, we were testing the effect of like the serving on the taste mm. so headline figure was for you know if you get it in a plastic glass you think it's awful unbranded it's a bit better say this is the same liquid uh branded glass it rates nicer but one of the things we did was we gave we kind of found blokes between 18 and 30 gave them found out whether they were foster's carlsberg or carling drinkers mm-hmm. and some people would be quite you know passionate about one of them and mm-hmm. talk very dismissive about the other two mm. and then we gave them a blind taste test of the three beers and people were worse than chance at picking out their supposedly uh, uh favorite beer. beer so yeah so maybe put some cash on that next time one of your corona drinking friends uh mocks carlsberg right, I'll, I'll see if he can pick it out of a a, a, a line taste have, test. yeah yeah, yeah, clever, yeah clever little yeah, bastard yeah, yeah. um so did we get did we get number four did we get um, number four that's number four i think four was claim data Yes. Number five, the final one. Yep. 
and this is more of a, it's my favourite story for how psychologists came up with the idea. And it's the, if you heard of the Dunning-Kruger yes. effect. Yeah. Ah, okay. So, for the listeners, uh, it'll be worth explaining it. Yeah, yeah. So David Dunning, Justin Kruger, is that right? David Dunning, that's right. Yeah, to, I think, psychologists at Cornell, they're reading a local paper and they come across the story of MacArthur Wheeler. So MacArthur Wheeler has just been jailed for 20 years for committing two bank robberies. So in a single day, he'd robbed two banks. <laughs> the time he drove home, uh, the police are waiting for him and they arrest him. And the reason that they caught him so quickly was that uh, unlike most burglars, uh, bank robbers, he didn't bother covering his face with a balaclava. He turned up at the bank and the only precaution he'd taken was he'd smeared his face with lemon juice because his mate had told him that lemon juice is what you, know, you make invisible ink out of. So therefore, if you put the juice on your face, uh, the security cameras won't be able to pick you up. And supposedly, he tried, you know, because he's not a complete idiot, he tries a bit, uh, he tries, he, he tests this theory, he takes a selfie of himself, but he manages to kind of shoot the wall behind him because he's not angled right. Mm. And so he's he got fucking lemon in his eyes, that's why. <laughs> he's <laughs> yeah, covered yeah, his yeah, face yeah. in lemon. So, they, uh, Dunning and Kruger read about this and they think, well, wait a minute, there is a massive vested interest in this person knowing their abilities accurately. So how can they be so deluded about their ability to rob a bank and get away with it? And they began to wonder, is this, although that, of course, is a very, very extreme version, is that typical of other people? So they begin by testing people. They give them grammar tests, I think logic tests, maths tests, get them to do these tests, note down where they've appeared from, you know, in, you know, let's say they get 100 people to do it, what uh, percentage they've, uh, you know, they're ranked as. And then they get the people to estimate where they've appeared. Now, in general, people are overconfident. They think they're better than average. And now everyone can't be better than average. But the key <laughs> why it became known as the Dunning-Kruger effect rather than just the bias of overconfidence was uh, they noted that people who were experts – sometimes underestimate their abilities when people were novices and pretty darn awful they were more, more like they there was a bigger kind of um overestimate of their abilities so it's the kind of idea that when you're really bad at something you really do overestimate how good you are so it became known as the dunning-kruger effect now i think there's loads of fascinating implications for marketers about overconfidence that too often great campaigns are jettisoned too early because people believe, well, I'm, I did a brilliant campaign, you know, 10 years ago, that's running out of juice. Now I'm going to do a, mm. another great one. They overestimate their ability. But I think the main reason that would make it to the desert island is the, the MacArthur Wheeler story for me, I think, is the... I didn't know about the lemon juice thing. Yeah. It's so good. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Because it's like the more you know, the more you know you don't know. Uh, what is it the valley of the valley of ignorance or something and then the climb of of learning yeah um there's a there's, sound, go back to nine enders that doesn't sound like a terminology some academics came up with no, so maybe all. that's been the, yeah. 
who knows? Who knows? Yeah. The whole thing yeah. doesn't sound like that. So we're going to we're going to finish up shortly, Richard. Have you got any any bits that you've seen recently? Have you got one more little anecdote or one more little thing that you've got jotted down that you think would be a good way to finish finish off the episode today? Um, the I think I think the best example I've seen recently, uh, and maybe we'll have to stick an image up here because my description's not video guy be... Dean will, will <laughs> yeah video yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I saw I can't remember who did it unfortunately and I do like to try and credit people because it's not fair to uh, not mention but there was a wonderful tweet recently where someone had taken a photo um, of a sign in a in a in a little corner shop and it essentially said Jurex condoms five dollars mm. oh, sorry trojan condoms five dollars uh huggies twenty two dollars i think that's the <laughs> usage of price relativity i've ever seen uh don't compare yourself to jurex compare yourself to huggies and suddenly uh, you look look much cheaper you got the downstream I'll implications I'll, 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 take, I'll take that one out and, that's good and there's a there's a i saw recently on your twitter the one about um beware pickpockets operate in this area so paul craven um does this wonderful talk at nunchstock where he said look people assume communications work rationally so you put up a sign saying beware pickpockets operate in this area surely we've now communicated the information this is a danger this area um pickpocking rates should drop what he says is that that actually tends to backfire because when people see that sign their automatic responses without thinking to straight away, you know, tap their pockets to make all sure of the valuable pockets. areas of their body. If you're a pickpocket. What are you going to do? You're going to stand <laughs> by that side. <laughs> hit that side. Oh, thank you very much. You've just identified where your wallet is. I'll be having that. Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah. I recently went to Barcelona and one of the guys that I was with fell asleep in Barcelona train station after a bit of a heavy night. Now, Barcelona is the pickpocket capital of Europe. Apparently I didn't know, but he found that out when he woke up to notice his phone wallet and shoes had been taken <laughs> shoes that's, taken yeah. from his feet that's just a master pickpocket <laughs> uh, it's just too easy um on that actually another great uh advert or, or, or nudge i saw and this one was from ogilvy they ran a campaign warning people about pickpockets where they used x pickpockets who'd kind of seen the light and they had a campaign called put pockets so they got the pickpocket to drop a little flyer in people's pockets saying well i it was easy enough for me to put this in your pocket i could have helped myself if i wanted to be much more careful and i love that as a way of wow. you know, don't tell people they are in danger you know kind of show them that's much much more powerful because you know going back to dunning kruger we're all you know all, all the other kind of generalized finding of overconfidence mm. if you say you know this area is danger for pickpockets or or you know you need to be more careful with your valuables most people think well it's not going to happen to me or happen to those other idiots it's one I, of those uh it's a great it, it's one of those things like the ethical hackers you know, they get the ethical hackers to come on board and hack into a company yeah. on behalf of the company. And it's like, oh, well, we've identified the hole in your particular system. This is the way that we go in. I want to know what a ethical pickpocketer gets paid. <laughs> yeah. 
And does he get paid based on the number of flyers that he gives out? Because that really should be. And it's like, oh, well, I gave, I gave this to a really rich guy. And I know for a fact that that Rolex is worth five grand. So I re, I need, I need big money for him and I need big money for that woman with the Levouton purse. And yeah, yes, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Performance based pay for the ethical pickpocketers. Pickpockets. They'll have a yeah. union soon. They'll have a union. Yeah. Well, Richard, today's been awesome, man. Thank you oh, so you. much. Um, where can everyone find you online? I absolutely love your Twitter. What what should they follow you at? So at R Shotten, R S H O. I forgot my bloody surname. <laughs> R S H O T T O N. And the book I wrote, which is all about applying behavioural science to advertising, is called The Choice Factory. Fantastic. And then the third thing I've done, which might be of interest, is I've just created a online training course. Um, With 42 which courses. Is about, yeah, that's exactly yeah, exactly one. So Rory Southern's done one about applying behavioural science, or about behavioural science in general. I've done one specifically on applying behavioural science to advertising. Wow. So links to all of that will be in the show notes below if you want to follow Richard on, on Twitter. He's very active. And it's just like when I log on now, I've been following you maybe for a week, just over a week, something like that. When I log on, it's just at the top of my feed. I only followed 68 people. So it's like the, it's a, a good chunk. Yeah, it's, yeah. You know, it's a, a real mark of something for you to get in there. And uh, I just go on and I'm like, it's always media based. There was a recent story about Julius Caesar about, I'll tell you what, why don't we finish with the story oh, about Julius yeah. Caesar? Can you remember that? Yes, yes. Uh, so this is from a brilliant book by actually an, an amazing uh, advertiser kind of in his heyday, 70s, 80s, 90s, called Dave Schrott. And he's written a lovely book called Creative Blindness. And he talks about um, Julius Caesar. So age 23, Julius Caesar is captured by some pirates and they want to uh, ask for 20 units of silver and julius caesar says no 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 hang on don't ask for 20 i'm worth far more than that ask for 50 and this is the <laughs> highest amount that any um you know politician general whatever has been ransomed for so all of a sudden people are like god, god this caesar man must be amazing you know if he's being asked for uh, you know the pirates reckon he's worth that much and in this blog that i kind of photoed a snippet from from dave trot he essentially argues that caesar invented the idea you know a thousand years before of the, the the veblen effect and that's the idea we touched on with stella that people assume something that is expensive must be high quality so caesar's working on the idea that well you know if i go out and can say that i had you know the highest ransom ever you know people are going to assume i must be an amazing general and that's going to set off my political career Despite the fact that he came up with the price. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure he kind of, he didn't bother mentioning that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, the other story, this is someone, when I, I love the thing about Twitter, is someone, uh, and actually I, I came, came back and sent me a link to uh, a longer article about Caesar. And it mentioned that when Caesar was released, he then raised, uh, you know, a, a kind of armed party, went back and found the pirates who were still sitting around the same islands, caught them, and then had them all executed. So, I mean, you know, you want to be... <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he, was, he was a man that, uh, yeah, he probably shouldn't have messed with for a few reasons, not just his marketing now. Julius Caesar's a bad motherfucker, isn't he? Like, he's going <laughs> to... He's going to... His autobiography. Yeah, yeah. he's going to shaft you with behavioural science. Yeah. Then then he's going to make himself really well-known and super popular. Then he's going to come back. He's going to kill you. 
Yeah, you, oh, you do not mess with Julius Caesar. Richard, today's been fantastic, man. Everybody who is listening, please go and follow Richard on, on Twitter. He's absolutely fascinating. Any of the points that have come up that you've been interested in, feel free to give me a message wherever you follow me, at Chris Willex or Richard on Twitter, and we'll be more than happy to start the discussion yet again over the interwebs. Richard, yeah. thanks so much <laughs> for your time, man. Cheers, Chris. Thanks a lot.